It's an 87th Precinct bonus episode. Hi everyone, Paul here with a fascinating exclusive bonus interview for you all. I've recently been in the US and whilst I was visiting New York, I stopped into a wonderful bookshop where I interviewed a good friend of Evan Hunter. I'll give you a little more info on who that was in a moment, but first I'd like to say thank you to everyone who's listening to the podcast, and I'd like to give an extra special thank you to anyone who contributes, comments, shares or reviews the show. A really simple way to help us out is to go to the podcast provider of your choice, but especially Apple Podcasts, and leave us a review and a rating. And if there's something you'd like us to be doing, something you'd like to know more about, then let us know through Twitter or Facebook or email, hark87podcast at gmail.com. Now, a slightly less simple but still very easy way to support the show is to buy us a coffee. Not literally, although me and Morgan do like coffee. Um, Steve-O only drinks tea. But what we've done is we've set up a Ko-fi page, K-O-F-I. This is our digital tips jar We're not setting up a Patreon or putting anything behind a paywall. We'd just like to give you the chance, if you feel you'd like to, to contribute the cost of a cup of coffee to our cause. Anything we raise will go towards the show, either improving equipment, helping with hosting costs or what have you. If you go via the link coffee.com, that's ko-fi.com slash harkpodcast, all as one word, or follow the links we'll put on our various uh, social pages, then again, we'd appreciate whatever you would like to do to contribute. So what better way to celebrate the opportunity we've given you to give us money, money, money than by listening to this interview. The bookshop I mentioned before is the Mysterious Bookshop, the oldest specialist mystery bookshop in America. And you can find that on Warren Street in the Tribeca part of New York. It's also home to the Mysterious Press, a specialist publisher of crime, mystery and suspense books from a whole host of names you'll know. Heading up both operations is Otto Penzler, and he started up both businesses in the 70s. Otto kindly met up with me to reminisce about his very close friend, Evan Hunter, a relationship he clearly holds very dear to his heart to this day, and I think you can hear that very clearly in this interview. I don't want to say too much more up front about what we talk about, But Otto provides a unique perspective on Evan, and I don't think there's really anyone more qualified to talk about crime and mystery authors in the world. I've had to do a little editing to counteract the sound of the air conditioner, which switches on and off throughout the recording. It was very hot in New York. And you'll also hear in the background the mysterious sounds of the mysterious uh, bookshop's office as well. But that's the nature of recording out in the field, as it were. But I'm going to shut up now and let you listen as we join Otto in his office downstairs at New York's Mysterious Bookshop. So this is my first visit to the Mysterious uh, Bookstore. How long has this existed? What's what's the background to it? Well, the background to the store is uh, that I fell into it. It was not a plan. Yeah. Uh, I had started a publishing company called The Mysterious Press. Which is still going, isn't it? Which is still going. Uh, in 1975. First books came out in 1976. And uh, it was a one-man operation. I, I did everything. And including shipping the books, wrapping them up and shipping them, uh, collecting the money from libraries and booksellers and, and individuals, and uh, doing it from my apartment in the Bronx. Yeah. <clears throat> which was um, and was fine until 
I started having success. <laughs> I couldn't keep up. But, you know, too many orders were coming in, uh, too much banking, too, too many books to wrap and take to the post office. Yeah. And so I started looking for a place in Manhattan because you couldn't very well call a secretarial service and say, come to my apartment in the Bronx. <laughs> So I that thought it sounds of, like the start of a mystery book. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it sounds like a serial killer book. Um, so I started looking for an apartment in the Bronx in, in Manhattan that would have an extra room that I could have as an office where somebody could be on a regular basis to help with, with all of this. And I couldn't afford the rents. Yeah. And so I wound up buying a building on 56th Street, right behind Carnegie Hall. Wow. Um, it was a very tough time for New York, 1978. The city was largely bankrupt. Yeah. It had been taxed to death. Uh, people were moving out. And I was able to buy this building with a partner for my life savings, which was $2,000. Goodness me. It was the down payment. Uh, the building cost $177,000, for which you could not get a one-room studio in, in New York anymore. Yeah. Uh, but that was a long time ago, 40 years ago. So now I have this building. Yeah. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to have a bookshop? I have all this space. So uh, I built a bookshop on the ground floor and the first floor. We built, put in a spiral staircase to go from the ground floor where the paperbacks were yeah. to the main floor, the the first floor, what in America we would call a second floor, yeah. we would call the first floor, um, uh, where we put in hardcovers and used books and rare books and so on, and built my office and everything. And that's how the store started. I knew nothing, nothing about running a bookshop. I just thought it would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, well, that's a good principle on, to start something yeah. with, isn't it? Fun, thinking it'd be fun. Was it fun? It was fun and it still is. Brilliant. Uh, you know, I love, there are parts of it that I don't like, uh, inevitably, because it's a job. It's called a job for a reason. Mm. It's not a holiday. Uh, but, yeah, I love, I, I don't work in the store very much anymore. I spend most of my time as a publisher and uh, and doing, I, I handle all of the rare books in the store. So down here, I'm cataloging books and pricing books and and all of that for the rare books that we sell, which is a major part of our business. Uh, so I'm not on the floor where you just were upstairs. Yeah. There are several other people who are working up there now. Um, so I don't have the fun of pulling a book off the shelf. If you walk into the store and say, what should I read? The great fun was pulling off favorite books, favorite authors, yeah. and saying, here, take this, you know, or occasionally overstepping and seeing somebody with a book by... I don't know, Tom Clancy, and saying, you don't want that. Put that down. Put that back and, and take Ross Thomas instead, you, or, you know, or, or Ed McBain or John D. McDonald or somebody who is really good. And a lot of times they would uh, say, well, I'll take that too, because I still want my Clancy. Uh, and then they would come back and thank me, and it was just very rewarding. So I kind of missed that day-to-day -day interaction with my customers, but, but which was really the fun part. But I also love dealing in rare books. It's just, it's a great deal of fun. So a lot of first editions and sort yes. of limited run things like that. Yep. Wow. And you presumably know a lot of uh, 
authors, particularly the New York authors, personally? <clears throat> I've been doing this for 42 years. I know pretty much every author, um, both in New York and the rest of the country, and indeed many, many friends in the UK. Yeah. I've published many British writers over the years, so I got to know a lot of people quite well. Brilliant. So you're definitely the guy to go to to talk about mysteries and talk about mystery novels, crime novels in New York City as well. Was it because we're here in this shop, this fantastic space, in your office, which for the listener is like an ideal reading room, that sort of sitting room type space that anyone would want, completely lined in books. Floor-to-ceiling bookshelves is the key. Yes, indeed. It's just a wonderful thing. Even if you have to stretch, it's worth the effort to get them, <laughs> to go and get them from the top. Yep. So I think then we get turned to um, Ed McBain or Evan Hunter. When was your first contact with him? How did he sort of uh, come into your orbit? It's actually uh, my first um, association with Evan is actually a very funny, I think, in retrospect, an absolutely hilarious story. Uh, I have to preface it by saying that Evan and I became extremely close friends yeah. uh, over, over time, but it didn't start that way. I was in the process of writing a book called The Encyclopedia of Mystery and Detection. Yeah. It was, in fact, an encyclopedia about every author, every important author, movies, books, characters, everything about the mystery world. It was the first big general reference book that McGraw-Hill ever published. And it won an Edgar, so it was a very good book. The process of making sure that everything was right involved me writing to every living writer. And if, if the writer had already passed away, uh, a widow or widower, a child, a grandchild, agent, anybody who knew that writer who would then read what I had written and tell me if it was all accurate. And uh, I wrote to Evan Hunter. And he was very sensitive about his name. Yes. He was born Salvatore Lambino, who was a very Italian name. And there was a great deal of prejudice about Italians in America when he was young, when he was born. And he changed his name legally to Evan Hunter. And what I wrote in the encyclopedia was that he had changed his name to Evan Hunter because he had gone to Evander Childs High School and Hunter College. Yeah. And he wrote back and said, that's not true. If you run that, I'll sue you. <laughs> so I wrote back and said, well, I've read this in several places and other people have told me that. If it's not, if that isn't how you came up with this name, please tell me, and I'll use that. It would be, I want to get the record straight. He said, I don't need to tell you about it. If you run it, I'll sue you. <laughs> I said, well, I'm running it. A bold move. Well, yeah, and I didn't realize at the time that Evan, it was in fact somebody who frequently threatened lawsuits and occasionally followed through. No, right. He was, he a very tough, he was a really tough man, really tough guy, and easily offended, and would get almost physically violent, almost. Yeah. Um, and so I, the book came out with that, and I never heard from him again. <clears throat> Several years, a couple of years went by, 
he never came to the bookshop. I never met him face to face. And then a mutual acquaintance uh, who, with whom he played tennis, who was a customer in my bookshop, yeah. said, you know, I, I know you told me this story, uh, but he's a really terrific guy and you should meet him. I said, look, you know, I don't want to sue me. Um, I'm happy to meet him, but I, we didn't have a really pleasant beginning. He said, let me smooth it over. And he did. And he called me and said, Evan would be thrilled to come and sign his new book at, at the store. I said, great. And we, we became like friends almost instantly. Yeah. It, it was all forgotten on his part. There was no underlying resentment or anything of that sort. It was as if it had never happened. Not that he forgot. <laughs> 35 years later, I still heard about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was the human contact made, made you friends, meeting face to face. Yeah. And uh, so my, my wife and uh, Evan loved my wife, and, uh, as I did, and, uh, she, and she loved him as, as almost everybody did who met him. And we would frequently go out. Then, within about a, some years later, quite a few years later, my wife left me and he left his wife. All right. So we were both single almost simultaneously. Yeah. And I was devastated and suicidal. And Evan and I went out to dinner two or three times a month. Uh, and he was the only person who could make me laugh. And we just bonded so well in our single bachelorhood, as it were. Uh, for quite a while, and then I met his uh, his new girlfriend, fiance, eventually uh, wife, who I thought was terrific, and uh, I was very close to her for a long time as well. So that must have been a yeah, it must have been quite a an emotional time for you, but, and you both of you there, and that's yeah, that's a yeah. heck of a bonding experience. It is. It is exactly the word I was going to use, you know, because. You know, we had so much to talk about, both with our, with regard to our relationships, as well as many other things in the world. Yeah. And uh, and it was, you know, having all that time together, because when you're part of a couple, you tend to see, you're still pretty young, but when you get older and you're part of a couple and you know people, you tend to gravitate to other couples. So that's a fairly common uh method of, of way of going out and, and being social and you, when you're suddenly single the people that you knew as couples don't know which side they're going to take yeah. or they're a little uncomfortable and so many of the friends that I had and many that he had sort of s slipped off to the side a little bit yeah. and so we really bonded very very closely for about two years where we did that we, of course we stayed friends after that and saw plenty of each other but that was the time where we really became like brothers. Well, that's amazing. That really is. Um, in terms of his stories, did you read his stuff before you sort of became friends with him? So oh, yeah. I read a lot of uh, 87th Precinct stories especially, uh, but also some of his short stories. He was a really good short story writer. Yeah, and you've, those are, a lot of those are collected in um, Learning to Kill, the book, aren't they? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I published a great collection of his stories called Learning to Kill, the early early stories that he had written when he was still learning to write it was the idea the sort of the pun of the uh, the wordplay for yeah. the title he was it's learning a, to write while he was learning to kill 
it is a, it's a very good collection yeah. and it's, it's an essential collection for anyone reading especially the 87th precinct to see a little, where a lot of those ideas come from I mean, and actually some of the actual stories yeah. being built out of the short stories yeah <clears throat> you know then I, I also um, not Mysterious Press but a, another company that I started called the Armchair Detective Library I reissued in hardcover a lot of those paperback originals the 87th Precinct books that had come out as paperback originals, uh, I did them in hardcover for the first time yeah. and asked him to write a new introduction to every book, uh, which were really wonderful essays. Yeah, I've read, a, I've read a couple of those from the early ones, and they're really useful in giving some perspective on what his idea was behind it, this idea yeah. of the, you know, the conglomerate hero, the, the, the force rather than the individual. Yeah, especially, especially the introduction to Carpater. Yeah. The first book, where he really talks about how this started and, and why he wanted to do it the way he did it. Yeah, and I think that's that's what makes it such an addictive series, isn't it? That you've got you can read those stories with that principle at its heart that you can follow these threads. It feels real, even though it's set in not saw, not quite yeah. uh, not, not quite, quite New York. But you know, here I am visiting New York and looking at places and going. I know that from the 87th Precinct, even right. though it's called whatever. Yeah. But you know why he did that? He, he explained that he didn't want to keep up with the law. Yes. Because law changes on a regular basis. There are new statutes and new precedents and, and things that happen in the city. He says, I don't want to be studying that. So I'm making it a fictional city. So you can't say, no, you got this wrong. Exactly. Because in my city, it's right. <laughs> yeah. And so you don't have to use a real map and say, oh, we've got to get this person from here to here in 20 minutes, but in reality it would take two hours or right. whatever. So you talked about his, his background as coming from an Italian immigrant family, and that obviously plays into the books as well. And I presume, really, I've read quite a few New York-based novels in that sort of period and era of the 20th century, and clearly the sort of immigrant background is massively important to the city and to the stories. He changed his name, and he's, he's talked a few, you know, different places about why, and you've, you've given us some background there as well. How important do you think that immigrant background, though, was to his storytelling? Because he made Steve Carella, not the hero, but the, the main cop in the thing, and Carella. Yeah. I, we always <clears throat> suspect Carella is his avatar in the books. It's a bit of Evan, but obviously we don't know him, so is that, does that sound realistic? Uh, it is realistic. Um... But, but only to, uh, to a small degree. To some degree, all of the characters had some elements of Evan yeah. uh, in them, which is almost inevitable if you're writing seriously. Um, there's a wonderful, he tells a wonderful story about Corella uh, in the first book. If you, I don't know how well you remember Cophater, but at the, towards the end of the book, he's shot. Yes. And in the original version, he dies. And his brilliant editor said, no, you can't do that. He's the hero. You can't kill the hero. And Evan said, no, no he's not the hero. The 87th Precinct is the hero. He's one of the, the cops. And the editor said, no, he's the hero. And you have to keep him alive. And the, the poignance of the original, I saw the original. Oh, wow. I, saw, I read the pages of When He Dies, and you weep. Yeah. It's so incredibly tender, this this great person, this great man, 
dying uh, on the job and he saves him. You know, the editor saved his life and of course then he became really the de facto hero of the series, as you say. Yeah, because uh, it was a three book deal, I believe, originally. Three cop stories he was going to do and then that, that right? could have been the end of it. Yeah. Which would <laughs> just fills me Can with dread of the thought that that would, wouldn't have gone on. Yeah, it's, it's horrible to think about, really. Do you think he he thought of the 87th Precinct as as important as his other stuff? Because sometimes you get the idea that, and I know recently it's been announced that crime and mystery is like the biggest selling style of book, but that's not always been the case. No. And certainly off the back of that, the paperback <coughs> and pulp era, it was considered sort of the poor relation to literature, right. wasn't it? So did he have a bit of that with the 87th Precinct, sort of like his meat and bread, but it was a bit slightly the embarrassing relation sometimes? No, no it, it wasn't at all. He was very proud of the 87th Precinct. Uh, the fact of the matter is the Evan Hunter books sold dramatically more. Yeah. He made a great deal of money with some of those books, which were big bestsellers. They were bought for the movies for serious money. Yeah. Uh, and because of the success of the books, he was asked to write screenplays for some of them. So the money was much bigger for Evan Hunter Later, nobody remembered Evan Hunter books. They, nobody bought them. They weren't very successful. And while the 87th Precinct became very successful. But he was always proud of the books. He always thought that they were as good as anything that he was writing as Evan Hunter, uh, which were, as I said, much more successful because they were more mainstream. And as you say, too, you know, yes, back of the bus for the mysteries, you know, <laughs> it's genre fiction. It's just not that important. But no, he put as much work into the 87th Precinct as he did to any Evan Hunter book. Yeah, I've only read a handful of the uh, Evan Hunter ones, and it's interesting hearing his voice in a different context, because, you know, McBain is McBain. But I think McBain's voice changes a little bit as time goes by. It always suits the era that he's writing the books in. Yeah, well, he changed. You know, he, he matures and he ages, uh, has more experience, more more things to write about, a different view um, of certain things. Remember, he wrote for a very long time. Indeed, yeah. And he wrote a lot of books. He was a, was it something like he would, when he was getting ill, he made the concession of writing for eight hours a day instead of ten or something, <laughs> something like that? Uh, not my experience with him. There may, be, there may be some truth to that. When he was younger, he might have been writing more. But um, I was very taken at his house in Connecticut, he had a lovely, lovely house, but about a hundred yards away, he had built a little office, a separate building. Yeah. And he worked the way a banker would work. At nine o'clock in the morning, sharp, he would leave the house after breakfast and walk down to the studio. And he would write until 12 o'clock. At 12, if he was halfway through a sentence, he stopped, got up, walked back to the house, had lunch with his wife, at one o'clock, went back to the office and worked till five. At five o'clock, he stopped. Then he would have a cocktail or two or three <laughs> and have a dinner, maybe have a party at his house, go out with friends and, um, and, and so on. He had a very active social life. He had a lot of friends, a lot of people who loved him and uh, loved to do things, loved to travel, loved to go out. In, in Connecticut and in New York. He also always had a flat in New York. Well, as long as I knew him, he had a flat in New York as well as the Connecticut house. Yeah. So he was very, very active. 
but eight hours a day, that was it. Yeah. Well, it's, Maybe when he was younger, he wrote 10 or 12 hours. Not surprised, wouldn't be surprising if he did. Well, there's a certain discipline to doing a creative task like writing and being able to say, I'll just stop now, it's lunchtime. There's yeah. a, that's a whole different set of discipline to, the, to just, you know, the, oh, I am writing, I'm creating, I must carry on doing it. Yeah. Oh, I wonder how many authors take that approach. I, I used to, I was very close friends to a, a wonderful writer who's not as well known as he should be. Uh, he was a grandmaster of the uh, Mystery Writers of America, too, as Evan was, uh, Stanley Ellen. Right. And Stanley Ellen could write, he said, for two hours a day. Uh, I published him for a while, and I said, well, I need to talk to you about, about something here in the book. What's a good time to call you? He said, well, I work from 10 to 2, from 10 to 12 every day, so be sure to call me then. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, perhaps you could uh, give me and our listeners some uh, recommendations for authors that we've maybe not heard of. So if someone likes the Ed McBain books, who else are they going to like? I would say that they're going to like John D. MacDonald. Yeah. Um, he has the Travis McGee series. The other, a lot of the standalones are at least as good, maybe better. But it's, if you like McBain, you're definitely going to like John D. MacDonald. And you would probably, probably like Russ Thomas. Yes. Russ Thomas in tone and style was a little like Evan. Always an underlying humor along with the violence, the suspense, the detection, although Thomas didn't write much in the way of detective stories at all. Uh, he went from espionage thrillers to caper novels to uh, crime stories, all kinds of things, but the tone would be very much like Evan. And Ross Thomas's two favorite writers were John D. MacDonald and, Ev and uh, Evan Hunter. Yes, well, that's, that's definitely a recommendation. You know, those are names that I think... Uh you would assume most McBain uh, readers would be familiar with because that's, if you go in into that world, you start to see all the connections and the, the people who either similar or you, friends say, if you like yeah. this, a bit like your old recommendations in the bookshop yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. One, a recent, oh, sort of recent to me, but definitely not, you know, he's been writing himself a long time, is Lawrence Block. Uh, that was the next person I was going to say. I'm, I happen to be looking past you there and that entire wall of books is Lawrence Block books. Um, I bought his... His, uh, all of his books, you know, everything that was in his apartment, there are cartons more outside. <laughs> uh, he just needed to get, get rid of some stuff, and so I just bought everything. But the Matt Scudder series, which are set in New York, yeah. uh, are, the, are the books to read. I mean, there are plenty of good Lawrence Block books, but the Matthew Scudder series is just terrific. He's kind of a private eye, not official, but he has the same role as a private eye. Uh, which is very different from police procedural. Definitely, yeah. Uh, but the, again, the background of New York was a really important part of the Lawrence Block books as they are the Ed McBain books, even though it's not New York, but the background of New York is very real. Yeah, definitely. Oh, fantastic. So, Evan, was he, would you describe him as a bit of a, a raconteur? Was he socially someone who would like to chat and tell stories? Every Oh, all the time. And... He could bring a table to tears laughing so hard. <laughs> uh, you know, he had a million stories. He loved to laugh himself. Um, 
if you tell him a funny story, he wouldn't chuckle or something. He would laugh uproariously. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was a great joy to get him to that place where he would laugh so hard that he'd be tearing up. He was just <laughs> uncontrollable laughter. He was a great laugher. Uh, but yeah, he told stories all the time. Uh, true stories, some not true. You know, he would remember jo- not jokes. He really wasn't a joke teller. But, but he'd remember funny stories and tell, and he would love to share them with other people and make them laugh. I heard some of the same stories a dozen times because he, re- he liked the stories so much and he would re- repeat them. And, you know, if you meet enough people and you tell favorite stories often enough, you don't remember who you've told it to. You know, yeah. sometimes he would say, I know you've heard this, but then he would tell somebody else the story or so hear it again. But yes, he was uh, as creative and as, as good at telling stories orally as he was writing them. It's always nice to, if, if you come across like an interview with him, let's say a radio interview, because obviously it's quite hard to get archive stuff, but there's a few BBC things that we can get back in the UK through their online stuff, and it's lovely to hear him talking. Um, so I, I imagine it was an absolute pleasure to, you know, oh. cocktail in hand to, oh. to, to spend time with him like that. We had a uh, we went to a birthday party for Donald Westlake. Yeah, and um, I guess there were eight tables, eight six people at a table, and Evan and I were at the same table, and one person was missing, and we were waiting a little bit and never showed up, and finally the waiter came over, and said, "Where's the person who's supposed to be here?" And at the exact same instant. Evan and I both said, dead. (laughs) Excellent. The table laughed. Evan was uncontrollable. (laughs) He could not stop laughing. And and it was so infectious that the entire room was laughing without having any idea why. They just had to join in laughing with Evan. Yeah, he must have radiated it. It sounds, sounds wonderful. And a romantic, is it, was he a romantic at heart as well? I mean, he, he was obviously married uh, three times. Three times. Uh, uh, he was, yeah. I sometimes wonder, you know, the books which people think of as, you know, sometimes call them hard-boiled and, you know, it's, it's gritty or, or whatever. But there's always a sort of, I wouldn't say sweet, but there's a there's love and romance in the undercurrents of the 87th well, Precinct all yeah, the time. Yeah, I mean, look at the way he uh, he wrote about Teddy. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can't do that unless you have a very soft spot inside of your body uh he was he was so great and the relationship that teddy and steve had was just such a beautiful yeah beautiful marriage so yeah i think there was definitely a strong romantic streak and remember he's italian <laughs> italians are romantics and uh and evan was very italian i don't care what he changed his name to <laughs> Yeah, I was reading, well, I'm reading um, 10 plus 1 at the moment. That's the next book we're looking at. And it's funny when you see there's little character studies where it might be something like a, a, a victim or an eyewitness pops up. And there's one in that book called Salvatore Palumbo. And you just think, is this his dad or his granddad in there, maybe? <laughs> so that's always interesting to see. So to, in terms of writing in New York, then, obviously you were talking about when you started the bookshop and the publishing in the 70s 
So the 70s presumably was very different to the New York of the 50s, but the 70s and the 80s were a very sort of heavy, hard time in New York. Yeah, it so was. That really did change and influence a lot of the writing, didn't it? Sort of then. I guess. I mean, I guess so. You know, he lived in Manhattan pretty much most of his life. He lived in the Bronx early, but he lived in Manhattan from pretty young. Uh, went to school in New York. He was a real. He was a New Yorker his whole life. The uh, Connecticut was. He he was affluent. He made quite a lot of money from his books. So, as is common for New Yorkers who have money, they buy a country house. Um, it became, I don't know if it was his primary residence, I guess it was, but he spent a lot of time in New York, so I always think of him as a New Yorker, although I know he spent a lot of time in Connecticut, um, in a very posh neighborhood, uh, free of crime, so, you know, I think he probably wanted to get away from some of the grit, can't blame him. Did, did his writing reflect the... The, the grittiness of the, of the time. Well, where he lived was pretty gritty in the 50s and 60s, too. Yeah. Did he ever talk to you about Hill Street Blues and his feelings <laughs> about that? And the, the lawsuits that he threatened? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sure. He felt that he had been ripped off uh, by, by Hill Street Blues. That is, in fact, that should have paid him for the, for the notion I don't think it's possible to do that. No, uh, I think it would have been very difficult. It would have been to a very prove. difficult suit to win. I think he was talked out of it by his lawyer, saying, "I don't think you can win this." Uh, but if anybody would say, if Steve Bochco, who created the show, said, "No, I never heard of the eighty seventh precinct," I would call him to a liar to his face. Yeah, it's yeah. Obviously, uh, Stephen Bochco passed away not too long ago, so yeah. obviously there's a lot of reflecting back on that period. And, yeah, I remember the first time I started watching Hill Street Blues must have been uh, when it was being repeated on Channel 4 in the UK quite late at night. And it must have been about the time I was really getting stuck into the 87th Precinct. Oh. And I was thinking, hang on a second. This is it, yeah. <laughs> the main character's an Italian-American. And yeah, uh, so it was interesting. And but then, of course, yeah. been, since then, there have been several other shows that are very similar. Yeah. Uh, uh, Law and Order, uh, Special Victims Unit. You know, there's... Have you seen that series? I've seen bits of it, yeah. yeah. There's so many of them now, it's quite hard to watch yeah. them all. But they, there's recurring characters there every week, and it's not, there's no, well, there are two that are primary uh, hero hero and heroine, uh, male cop, female cop, but the other characters are always there. Uh, you see them week after week, year after year. Uh, so it does also have that sense of, uh, of a unity to it that the 87th Precinct did and that Hill Street Blues did. It's lovely as a reader or perhaps as a viewer to have that when you feel like you're in those places with those characters they're if not family at least trusted work colleagues that you're yeah, spending time with. A place where you know you know everybody and everybody knows you you know. Yeah. Uh, there, was, there was a very popular television series here called Cheers. Yes. Uh, and the opening song is a place where, where you go, everybody knows your name. And there's a real great comfort to that as a reader who goes to 221B Baker Street yes. and recognizes Holmes and Mrs. Hudson and Watson uh, and the surroundings. And then the American Nero Wolf character 
of West 35th Street with Archie Goodwin and his cook and his orchid maker, orchid <laughs> uh, grower, uh, you know, and all of the characters who were there in a familiar setting. And there's something very comforting about going to a place where you kind of know your way around. You know the people, you go back, you visit them again and again, both in real life and in fiction. Yeah, or perhaps there's also that thing of, like, with uh, Dashiell Hammett, you want to hang around with Nick and Nora Charles and yeah, go well, to the parties. One book, though. Yeah, it's true. Remember. A lot of spin-off films, I believe. As yeah, well. there were five. There were six, but uh, totally different. The book is quite dark. Yes. And, yeah. and the films are comedies, very light comedies. Yeah. But uh, William Powell and Myrna Loy, very good. And fabulous together. Yeah. And, uh, and ironically, they just intensely disliked each other. <laughs> and William Powell would make sure that he had garlic or would have onions if it was a scene where they had to kiss. He would make sure he would do that to, uh, to really annoy her. <laughs> that goes a bit beyond a prank. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. It seems a silly question to ask if you miss Evan as a friend, because obviously he was your friend. More than most, more than most people know. Do you think he would have carried on writing the Eight Seventh Precinct had he lived a bit longer? Yes. Yes. He did. He did a lot of other books. You know, he started uh, the Samuel Holt, uh, Samuel, um, not Samuel, the the lawyer Matthew Hope. Matthew Hope. Um, and did those long, pretty long series. Uh, and then he started a series of uh, books about women, starting with A is for Alice, essentially, yeah. and then B, and so on. Um, but he never abandoned the 87th Precinct. He just did it just to do something different. He wanted to do different things, uh, and he thought he could do more things with uh, writing outside of that series. Yeah. But the last book he wrote was, uh, which I published, uh, was the 87th Precinct novel. In terms of re uh, publishing or republishing, it, those early ones, like, uh, was it, trying to get the title right now, because there's been a couple of different titles for some of them, hasn't there? You've republished things like uh, Death of the Navy, which right. be, uh, was it Death of a Nurse? Death of a Nurse. And there was, uh, oh, I don't know, I did about eight of those books, um, mostly early 87th Precinct, but but they but the idea of the series was to do books that had been paperback originals yeah. and then put them into hardcover for the first time. Uh, and the 87th Precinct then went into hardcover after the first six, was it, or seven? Yeah, this thing is Perma Books first, wasn't it? Then Simon yeah. & Schuster yeah. took over with the, the hardcovers. Yeah. So the sort of uh, copies that we come across a lot in the UK are like the pan editions and um, a lot of the paperbacks. So you don't see that many hardcover editions around and about in the UK. It's, it's interesting to know the publishing history. So in you, you've been part of that publishing history. I think we'd go mad if we tried to be publishing edition completists collecting the 87th precinct. It would be really hard uh, because they were so popular they were reprinted over and over by different houses. Uh, and of course, he was popular around the world. Yes. So there are all kinds of foreign language editions and, and so on. He was, uh, I know he was very popular in Germany uh, and other places too. I don't, I don't know every place where he was popular, but he was certainly popular in Japan too. Yeah, I've seen some very nice looking uh, editions from Japan. There seems to be quite a lot uh, 
appropriately in Italy as well at the moment. Yeah. It's being published in quite a nice range yeah. as well. It's a funny thing to share, I think, very personal memories with people about someone who they only know through the words that they've written, the fictional words they've written on a page about other characters. Yeah. But, well, it's one place I've been so fortunate, you know, to have a bookstore. Uh, it was on 56th Street, which is the heart of Manhattan. And so every writer would come to that store. Now, pretty much every mystery writer comes to this store. It's the only one left in the city. So they all come here. So I've gotten to know them all. Uh, and they, they turn out as a group to be the nicest group of people that you could ever know. They get all their anger and frustration out on the page. <laughs> you know, they, they create, they make up a character, a real life character. They fictionalize them and then kill them in a brutal way. So they have some catharsis. <laughs> um, but Evan, you know, at the end, uh, towards the end, he had uh, uh, cancer of yes. uh, the, the larynx. So he had to use this device to, uh, to hold against his uh, uh, vocal cords to yeah. be able to speak. And um, it was really remarkable that he maintained, it was a horrible thing to happen to somebody who loved to laugh so much, who loved to talk so much, yeah. and who was so social. Uh, a lot of people would have crawled into a corner, but Evan continued to go out, continued to be riotously funny, and tell stories, holding this thing against his throat, uh, it didn't slow him down. And it showed remarkable strength, I think, courage, um, just a, a, a joy of life that he was not about to give up without a lot of fight. Wonderful. Excellent. And so, did he have a favorite drink? Was there a favorite tipple that he liked to have? If you were to raise a glass to him, what would you be raising? You know, that's really a good question. He did, and I'm not sure I remember. No. Oh. Might have been scotch, but I wouldn't swear to that. We drank a lot of wine together, because I don't drink. Right. Uh, wine and beer don't count. <laughs> Excellent. So, so we drank lots of wine together, but I know he, he, when he sat down, he, I would order the wine right away, and he'd say, well, first I want to drink. You know, and he would have that. I can't remember if we Scotch were a Manhattan. Might have been a Manhattan. I well, just seems appropriate. Yeah, but I I just can't remember. I I don't want to make it up, but I know he drank a real drink first <laughs> to start the uh, the evening. Well, I think that's given me a mission for uh, this holiday that I'm on is that I should drink a Manhattan in Manhattan and lift it to, in honor of Evan Hunter. Yep. And to say thank you to you also. So I think we'll wrap up there, Otto. Thanks very much for chatting to me. It's this been my wonderful. My pleasure. I, I love reminiscing about my dear friend. Thank you very much. So there you go. That was Otto Penzler, a man who shared more than a few laughs with Ed McBain, Evan Hunter, and a man who's done more than his fair share of work in keeping his name alive and, and his work available. I hope you enjoyed this, and don't forget we'll be back very soon with the next book in the 87th Precinct series, 10 Plus One. It's a high body count in this one, as a sniper is loose in Isola. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a review, comment, or visit our coffee page to donate. Bye.